Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's a movie you watch every year? Uh, well, I'm going to skip the obvious answer because I actually do watch It's a Wonderful Life every year for Christmas. And uh, so I'm going to skip that and just the Christmas season in general, because there's just a bunch that I watch every year. Uh, but one that, as we're recording, was recent uh, every Fourth of July or Fourth of July weekend. I watch Jaws. It's, you know, a perfect movie. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. A top five for me, maybe even top four if I'm feeling frisky. Uh, literally just got a Jaws tattoo. Uh, and it just, uh, it honestly just, I don't think any movies ever felt as perfectly like 4th of July weekend as that movie with the, the fishing town and everybody's just kind of hanging out on the beach and nobody really wants to admit that there's problems, uh, but there are problems and, uh, they're not going to go away if we just keep drinking away, hoping that it goes away. My answer used to be, uh, The Graduate. Uh, when I discovered that film when I was in high school, I was so obsessed. I watched it constantly and always found something new uh graduate and lawrence of arabia were big ones for me um for a while uh, that i would just watch every year at least once as i've gotten older i don't necessarily have the time for that sort of thing and i'm usually discovering something new i tend to not rewatch movies a lot anymore but one that i do rewatch at least once a year and have been for over a decade now probably since college is uh george melier's trip to the moon and part of that is because it's short and part of that is because it's silent, so I can even just watch it on mute if I need to. But I've come to really enjoy that. I find that a very calming viewing and a very exciting viewing at the same time because that film, you just look at that and see so much of the potential of cinema in that. It's still so fun to watch over 100 years later. Um, it's still so imaginative. The imagery is so iconic that any time I start to get a little cynical about this medium, or anytime I start to get a little cynical in general, I do kind of look at that and think about how I just get swept up at how magical it is. And in in an earlier episode, we talked about that uh, that quote, the um, uh, the quote of like uh, I think I think Scorsese is the one who tells the story about you know somebody complaining about Hollywood, but going, but hey, we get to work on the same medium that made the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Whenever I get cynical about movies or 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 any kind of art really i just look at trip to the moon what meliers did so long ago and go I, I don't know we get we're alive for the medium that made this isn't that cool we get to see that so trip to the moon i i watch constantly i love that film Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, 
We're celebrating the holidays a little early this year. Fox senior correspondent Emily St. James is our guest for 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. Our guest today is the senior correspondent at Vox, co-creator of the narrative fiction podcast Arden, owner of four cats, voted hottest mom in the kindergarten in 2028, uh, dubbed just another lady on the internet by the Wall Street Journal, and I'm going to add a superlative of my own, uh, the queen of Christmas movie podcasts. Uh <laughs> Emily St. James joins us today to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I have made it my thing to just appear on on Christmas episodes of podcasts. Now, is this running around Christmas? Because it's it's I'm going to spoil it's July outside and it's hot. It feels like July. <laughs> it's going to be running probably around August. So That's we're perfect. just, you know, yeah. Listen, if you're listening to this and you're in Peru, Happy winter. You're probably having a wonderful winter wonderland as you listen. Do you have a lot? Do you have a big audience in South America? Not in South America, but a surprising amount in Japan. Well, they're in the Northern Hemisphere. So honestly, fuck them. They're not having winter right now. We only care about people in the Southern Hemisphere. I live in the Northern Hemisphere. Tonight, I don't care about myself. Southern Hemisphere, this is for you. Official position of you're missing out. We only care about the Southern Hemisphere. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) I I I I like that before we started recording and you were joking about uh coming on and saying uh fuck one of our previous guests as a joke, you know, telling them to go screw themselves. But you have instead decided to come in right out the gate swinging for half of the planet. Listen, the northern hemisphere has had it too good for too long. Actually, that's kind of true. Um <laughs> So yeah, we're, uh, in this, we're in the series finale. This the last season of the Northern Hemisphere's dominance. So I, I guess since we're, since we're acknowledging it's July, we should also give a little more context to our listeners. It is both Emmy nominations day and the first day of prime day, which means all of us on mic now have likely been staring at our laptops for, for 12 plus hours. So uh, if we're all coming off a little, uh, a little loopy at various points, uh, we've been working we're, uh, America's about to end its season becoming a lumberjack. It's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm so wiped right now. It's it's great. I'm having a good time, but I am very much like We're all so tired. Yeah. yeah. Honestly though, my wife was like, This is when you're best on podcasts, is when you are just like you just want to go to bed. So this is gonna be great. We're gonna have a good time. I've already <laughs> fucked an entire hemisphere. So the, the, and- the Will Chamberlain of Podcasts, apparently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, is great. I'm glad we're doing this. This is um shout out to uh to Kenny Nybart who helped uh put this together. When we were talking about this season and we knew It's a Wonderful Life was on there, uh you you were uh I I would say the only person on our list, but uh, that's not true because we also looked at that and went, well, there's no way we're going to be able to get Emily on for this. Like that's just way too big an ask. Like that's, you know, such a such a notable figure wouldn't want to bother with our riffraff. And uh, thankfully, I think uh, Kenny Nybart uh, must have uh, lied very well to convince you that we were uh, in any way notable or worth coming on the show for. And uh, and you're here, which is very cool. I mean, I just do every podcast that asks me. No, that's actually not true. I used <laughs> that used to be my policy. And then I just like got totally overwhelmed. So this I've really tried to step back. So Kenny said only the nicest things about you. And you wanted to talk about one of my favorite movies. And I like hearing myself talk. So those were all good <laughs> things that, that came together wonderfully. 
Emily was just sitting in her chair like Michael Keaton at the beginning of Batman Returns. The Christmas <laughs> signal came on and she had to, she came running. This is, yeah. Yeah. I just like, I just, every time there's a Christmas episode of anything, I'm like, you know what? It's time. I got to be there. I'm like now the semi-regular Christmas guest on like four different podcasts that are about wildly different subject matter. I'm going to have, I'm not going to say why, but I'm going to have a very busy November and December this year. So I don't know if I can live up to that, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Uh, well, it's the four cats are going to keep you insanely busy uh, November, December. Yeah. This uh, Christmas is their favorite time. I got to buy them all special gifts. I got to wrap them. I got to make sure they're all doing fine. You know, we were worried that this podcast might not run an hour and a half, but at this point it's going to run for two and a half and it's going to be, I'm just going to talk about my cats. <laughs> and it's gonna and um, it's gonna be like the movie we're talking about we're not gonna get to the point until 30 minutes before it ends yes truly yes. shocks me every time every time i watch it i always go oh right yeah, so long doesn't to get show there. up until like there's 30 minutes left in the movie can we can we do a thing at the end where 30 minutes from the end we find out what it's like if one of us had never been born i think that would be good Let's just try it. I, I mean, listen, I spent most of the pandemic unemployed. I've thought about that question a lot. Hey. Uh, that was our first season of our podcast, was just me miserable. On <laughs> I, if folks go back and listen to our episode on the crowd, it is perhaps the saddest you've ever heard a person talk. It's uh, just like, oh, man, you know, I get it. He feels like his life has no meaning, man. I understand it's miserable. But we're talking about a film that is ultimately happy in the end. I believe the quintessential, for many people, the quintessential Christmas movie um, and easily the uh, most beloved and heartwarming film about a man's slow descent into wanting to take his own life. Just uh, arguably the most heartwarming film with that plot line. So... It is really, it is really either this or Charlie Brown Christmas. Like it's one of those two. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, like, is this is this the greatest ratio for a movie that's considered happy, where ninety five percent of it is just punch to your dick, miserable, mm-hmm. and then the last five minutes makes you go, "Oh, it was all worth it." And you go, "I don't know, man. This this movie's kind of fucking hardcore." I I mean, like that's we'll get into it uh, more, but. One of the things about this, you know, most times when we do this podcast, you know, a, a recurring theme, especially if it's like a Disney movie or, a, you know, an old timey childhood classic, is that I will talk about growing up with it. And Tom will always go, yeah, we didn't watch that when I was a kid. I only saw it like two years ago. This is the rare case where it's the opposite. Uh, Tom, obviously, It's a Wonderful Life has been a part of his life for a very long time. Uh, I never watched it growing up. My parents never showed it to us. Uh, and when I asked them why, both their response was, it's too sad. It's just a very sad movie, and we don't want to watch it. And I guess they also grew up with seeing it on TV all the time and just made the executive decision of, no, we're not doing that. So I didn't see it until high school when I saw it out on my own. Emily, obviously you've talked extensively about Christmas movies on other podcasts, but but what is your history with It's a Wonderful Life specifically? You know, I don't think I saw it until I was not high school, but like junior high, middle school, somewhere in there. I think I saw it when I was 11 or 12 for the first time. It was on the Disney Channel. This was back when uh, It's a Wonderful Life just played endlessly around the Christmas season. I'm 
I'm just old enough to have caught the tail end of that before the copyright stuff was figured out again. And now it's exclusive to, I think, NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I sat down to watch it and like, I made a very big show out of, I am only watching this for the alternate universe aspect. Cause I was one of those kind of kids. I was really annoying and like pretentious surprising i know um but uh so i said that at great length and then like i so i I had in my brain again the the classic stereotype of this film that it is just a incredibly uh happy over the top overly sentimental piece of treacle and then i watched it and i was like oh this movie feels like how i feel being alive and like at the end when it all like kind of turns around and george bailey has you know a happy time and and everybody saves him you also kind of realize george bailey's not going to jail but also tomorrow all of his other problems will continue to exist the the high from this from people being like in his corner will dissipate probably by new year's day definitely by valentine's day and like you know that's fine like he's that's that's life that's just how it is but that really spoke to me and i think I think it is the movie I've seen the most times for a long time. I would tell people this was my favorite movie. It it no longer is, um, but it's very much up there. I watched it last Christmas. Um, There was, I watched it with um, uh, my best friend. She uh, and I and my wife spent the holiday together. And so we watched, (laughs) we watched it's a wonderful life immediately followed by the yellow jackets pilot, which is like two things (laughs) that have really similar (laughs) tonal vibes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, uh, yeah, so we watched it and she was just like a god at how dark it gets. And I think that's like not a new thing to say, but you just have to keep reiterating it because this is an incredibly bleak movie and it leaves such a taste of that, that if you want to read it as like, this is a movie about the futility of community, you kind of can. I don't think that's a that's a good faith reading, but it's not like you can't make it. Um, so I've seen this movie on the big screen, on the small screen. I've seen it in so many different types of situations. Um, I've only seen it in the northern hemisphere though. So that's a that's a real <laughs> so, thing so on it, my part. I, oh, so it so it doesn't count. Yeah. It doesn't count. So this Christmas I'm going to fly to Perth and make sure I catch a screening of it's a wonderful life and i'm gonna be like why is it snowing in this movie it's very hot at christmas and we all know that (laughs) now i do want to ask because you said it used to be your favorite movie uh it's not your favorite movie anymore i want to confirm is that because bicentennial man has supplanted it because uh you were such a big fan on podcasts like it's 1999 i just assume all bicentennial man that's true okay that's true yeah, and you need to invite my wife onto this show to talk about Bicentennial Man because she offhandedly said on one like one time that she thought it would be funny if her bit was to go on every movie podcast and discuss Bicentennial Man. And then she was like, no, that sounds terrible. And I was like, no, that does sound like a good bit. So I just keep volunteering her for that. She hasn't taken anybody up on it yet, but one of these days it's going to happen. Well, well, we, 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 do an April, we do an April's Fools episode. So, uh... I think we could actually pull that off. Tom, I love that you say we do an April Fool's episode when the real answer is we did one and everyone was mad about it. Which means it's a good idea. And and no one else did. Uh, But if Bicentennial Man gets in the National Film Registry, I mean, we're, you know, we know where to go. I think it's, I think this is its year. 
to be honest, I think this is a tier. What if I did like a really elaborate Mr. Robot-esque hack to get Bicentennial Man listed on the National Film Registry website just for like a couple days so that y'all could put it in your podcast? And like, that's like what I expended a whole bunch of money on. Just like I hire like 16 elite hackers and they're like, are you trying to bring down, you know, the rise of fascism? And I'm like, no, I'm trying to make it look like Bicentennial Man's in the National Film Registry. Did you did you guys hear the, the the Vox critic who who hacked the federal government? Yeah, what's what's that about? Uh, <laughs> weird form of hacktivism. I think it was a performance piece. I think it was a performance piece and uh, was really reminiscent of Fight Club. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it concludes with the song "Where Is My Mind Playing?" as you and Tom hold hands and look out at an enormous face of Robin Williams as a robot. <laughs> As me and him hold hands as your wife has to just slowly and begrudgingly sit down in front of a computer to talk about it with us. And she just goes, God fucking damn it. Yes, yes, he wants to be a person. Okay. And that's the moment where she then goes to a bridge and has to be saved by Clarence. Clarence. He says, okay, you might have to talk about Bicentennial Man again. No, it's, it's, we're going to tell you what your life would be like if Bicentennial Man had never been released. That's the Clarence yes. vision. She she dies and she goes she goes to heaven and they're like, we got this podcast. Now, Listen, <laughs> she dies and goes to heaven and now she's like now she's got us stuck in heaven only doing heavenly podcasts about what dreams may come. <laughs> she's stuck so, doing forgotten well, Robin Williams our, movies. Of course, this is our episode on It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, as folks can tell from the Bicentennial Man talk. So before we get more into It's a Wonderful Life and really wherever else this is going to go, because again, we're all loopy, let's talk about what the National Film Registry had to say about It's a Wonderful Life. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say. Director Frank Capra created a holiday favorite with the story of a once ambitious young man, George Bailey, James Stewart, who sacrifices personal adventure to stand up against the despot Potter who tyrannizes his small hometown, Lionel Barrymore. When it looks like Potter has finally beaten him, George wishes he'd never been born, and an apprentice angel, Henry Travers, grants his wish. Shown the bleak parallel universe that might have been, George recants his wish and is restored just in time to see his family and friends come to his aid against Potter. Suggested by a short story written as a Christmas card by author and historian Philip Van Dorenstern, Capra and writers Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett crafted the screenplay for this film, which has become synonymous with Christmas spirit and what some have dubbed Capricorn. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. Mostly a synopsis and also a synopsis that skips the bulk of the film's runtime. Mm -hmm. So a lot going on in that Mm -hmm. one. This is uh, our second time covering a Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart joint. On season one, we got to talk about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And so, uh, uh, we're about, so I guess that means we're about a few weeks away from another uh, world shaking oh political event. Yeah, Emily, for context, uh, our Mr. Smith Goes to Washington episode that we recorded was uh, scheduled to release on January 7th, 2020. So a lot of 2021 panic. to be 2021, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, a lot of, lot of panic in the texts. 
January 7, <clears throat> January 7th, 2020. That was just another day. Nothing yeah. happened. And then it's before the world <laughs> fell apart, except, it's... except in China where COVID yeah, was already happening. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that is a wild coincidence. Definitely. Yeah. Just like, oh, it was, it was worse because, uh, someone, I won't sell out which host did this, but someone had to have a rant cut. When they talked about uh, um, when, what's his face? When Claude Rains comes out at the end wielding the gun. Mm. Uh, and he was talking about, well, you know, uh, none of these guys today would feel so ashamed of their actions. They'd come out, wielded a pistol to, to blow their brains out and had the sentence, there should be more guns on the floor of the Capitol. Is a sentence that got said when we recorded that months before <laughs> January 6th. I was yeah. yeah, I was cheering on some senators to uh, kill themselves in the halls of Congress, and uh, but it came I may out have the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real bad, real bad. <laughs> Had to cut have... all that out. You ever Fear. just read about? You ever just read about how in like the 1840s, like like people on the Senate floor were viciously beating each other with canes and shit? Mm-hmm. And you're oh like, yeah, and that really reminds me of Frank Capra's "It's a Wonderful Life" from 1946. <laughs> um, but so there is something. With this film, you know, this is our second time covering a Frank Capra, uh, James Stewart collaboration. And it's it's interesting because there, you know, Emily, you talked about it up top, but in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, even at its darkest, there's a prevailing sense of optimism and a prevailing sense of like, this is going to, you know, uh, you're, you're rooting for this guy. And he just has a simple dream and all that. And, this movie, despite being the one that everybody views as the holiday classic, is for the majority of its runtime very seemingly pessimistic. It's just this guy getting kicked down further and further and further. And it's it's so interesting in a way that that Capra does both those films with Stewart and kind of while I wouldn't say they're radically different performances, he does unlock different elements of Stewart, I think, in each of these films. Yeah. You know, um, there's a, the critic David Thompson wrote a novel called um, Suspects, which is one of the weirdest, most fascinating novels I've ever read. It is a series of film biographies of characters from movies. And so like you think the con- conceit that makes it a novel is that Thompson is writing about people from films as though they were real people, as though he is like a historian rather than a critic. And then gradually you realize the book has a different narrator entirely. And it is just kind of a weird masterstroke. I don't know if it really works. Like I'm not sitting here being like, I want to read that novel again, because it, it, honestly, it, not all of it hangs together. But I guess skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want this novel from 1986 that's gone out of print, spoiled for you. But um, the it ends up being that like George Bailey is like, like the one who's narrating this novel and it's just about how depressed he is. And as I, if I remember correctly, it's been like 20 years since I read this book, he like starts murdering some of them or something, or like he's contemplating murdering them. And because Thompson was like, Thompson didn't like, you know, a lot of Capra, but he was like, it's a wonderful life is one of the great American films because it is about his argument was essentially it's about how Americans will lie to themselves about how anything is happy. And I'm like, that's not wrong. (laughs) Thank you, David Thompson. 
every once in a while I hear something like that where like, well, George Bailey murders people or Winnie the Pooh is getting a horror film. And I just start going like, man, public domain is quite a thing. Really well, that's just the thing. None of this was in the public domain. And no. like, I get that. I get that it's transformative and that's why he was able to do it as fiction, but it's still like, it's just such a wild thing to be able to do. Like I, I, yeah, I, I remember reading it and being like really, um, really impressed by it and also being like this is kind of trying to do too many things at once but you know if you're interested in whatever that sounds like it's worth a read uh i do think it's interesting we're talking about you know obviously george bailey and that that what that character is i i do think in the grand oversimplification of this film because emily you talked about his reputation being very saccharine and all that i always find it interesting when i do revisit this movie because of how it's kind of become a part of the culture in a way it's so often parodied every sitcom or cartoon has done an it's a wonderful life parody my personal favorite obviously being uh when butthead from beavis and butthead gets shown what his life would be like if he had never been born and everyone's lives are better that's just me that one really works for me but even so when we observe this I think we kind of remember George Bailey as just like a, a a wonderfully wholesome guy. Like just what a swell guy. Great guy, you know, living a normal life. We forget about I think a lot of people forget about one he builds a, a like a affordable housing development. Like he's doing a lot. He does a lot more than just being a regular guy, but also he has to do most of it sort of by circumstance that that so much of the film is him wanting to travel or wanting to do all these things and there's that great there's that moment i adore when you know right before uh you know he he gets married where he just loses it and just goes you know now listen to me i don't want any plastics i don't want any ground floors i don't want to get married ever you know i want to do what i want to do and you just see that as he's saying that he's kind of accepted i guess this is not what my life is going to be yeah I believe we quoted that moment in Arden season two um, because it stuck, it stuck with me yeah. all the time. I can hear, right. You saying that line had me conjure in my brain, Jimmy Stewart saying, I want to do what I want to do. And it's just like, there's such a like gutting realization of the ways that life is never what you want it to be. Like I'm, I'm pretty happy with my life, all things considered. If I look back at, you know, all however many years of it, like I, I, I have so many places where I'm like, I wish I'd gotten more time with that person. I wish I'd gotten more here. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this. And like this movie captures that feeling better than almost any other movie because it gives you the chance. It stacks the deck. The ending of this stacks the fucking deck in a way that is like a little suspect, but it. I do think it provides a sense that, yes, it's worth remembering all these beautiful, wonderful things you do have, but that only lasts so long, you know, like, like it is not as though the unrelenting bleakness of the first hour and a half is not peppered with like George and Mary's wedding, which is very happy, or like several of these other moments that are happy moments in his life and then they just immediately fade away you know when the the george bailey lasso stork moment when mary's like look you're gonna be a father and he's so excited the next scene he's not anymore like (laughs) the good stuff gets montaged and the bad stuff is what he focuses on and that's sort of presented as like this clarence is seeing 
you know, his life really quickly so he can go save him. But that is kind of how it is, right? It is kind of like, you know, if I look back on my wedding, I'm like, yeah, that was a nice day. But if I look back on like the worst things that ever happened to me, I can recount them in excruciating detail. And like, I do think this movie captures that. And I think that's part of why I always bristle when people call it super saccharine. It's yeah, it's because it's it's so weird how like the world has like Mandela affected this movie into its reputation because I I watch it every year and every time I always am surprised when you're like wow yeah you always forget how long it takes for Clarence to show up how mean like kind of mean it is like ten minutes in a little boy gets beaten by a drunken pharmacist until his ear starts bleeding. And you're like, what the fuck? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it just feels more honest than it, its reputation gets, mainly because, yeah, you probably have a point that the end stacks the deck so high where all you remember is how you go out on such a high note. But Jesus Christ, this movie just keeps kicking and kicking and kicking to the point where you, you really do kind of just understand why George is ready to jump off of that goddamn bridge. We like dude, it's like nothing's going to work out for this guy. We get it. It's just enough already. I always kind of, I always kind of read this movie as a companion piece to Blue Velvet, the David Lynch film. Like, I think they're in conversation with each other in really interesting ways. I don't know if David Lynch likes It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I think if I called him up and asked him, he'd be like, the weather's sunny and we all love trees. And I'd be like, you know what? That's all. That's true, David. Um, (laughs) David Lynch is like, I just want to be friends with him. I just want, actually, I want him to be my grandpa. I want him to be my grandpa and I'll just get him a card every Father's Day and be like, you're the world's best grandpa. And he'll have Mickey Mouse on it. He'll be like, I once saw Mickey Mouse in a diner in Schenectady, New York. And uh, I bought that Mickey Mouse and then I had to throw him out because he was possessed by the devil. I'll be like, okay, thanks, grandpa. Um, anyway, I don't know if he's ever seen It's Wonderful Life. We should call him and ask, but, uh, it, Blue Velvet (laughs) and this movie really like have this interesting conversation about people forget that Blue Velvet is kind of hopeful and optimistic and people forget that this movie is fucking dark because, the endings, you know, the ending of Blue Velvet has some really dark, terrible stuff. And then it ends on this hopeful, optimistic note that nevertheless is super fucked up because you're like staring at the world's fakest bird. And, like, <laughs> and, and but it is played entirely straight. And that's the tension within Lynch. And there's a similar tension within Capra that is I am playing the happiness extremely straight but I understand that it is coding something much worse. And I think, you know, we'll probably talk in a second about this movie as a post-World War II movie, but I think it really captures something essentially American in a similar way to what Lynch captures in Blue Velvet. Yeah, and I think that part of that, you know, part of the tragedy of the film when you think about it that way is, so George is going to jump off the bridge because he's just, he's, he's miserable. Life keeps kicking him down. And then what does he get shown? It's it's not as though he gets shown something that necessarily makes him go, I love my life. The vision he gets is, look at how much worse everyone would be if you hadn't been born. It's essentially telling him, like, well, you have a role to play in this. Everybody else would be worse off if you weren't here. There's not necessarily that many moments where Clarence is going, 
well, you should be happy about this. It's more just saying like, look, that you know the you know the the pharmacist he'd be an old drunk. This person would get institutionalized, and worst of all, your wife would work at a library. Like he's laying out all of the uh, one the one moment that does make you go, okay, bit odd there. Just the severity with which I watched it with my partner for the first time two years ago, and when Clarence just goes, she's closing up the library. She looked at me with this face of what the fuck is this. Enjoyed it most of the way through, but just this look of what? What? Well, listen, I I had I was talking with somebody about this movie before, and some of its treatment of uh, you know, Mary, the wife character. I'm like, listen, it's a movie from the 40s. We're just lucky that George never slaps her in the movie. You yeah. need to kind of a lot of wife slapping in 40s movies. We should be at, at grateful that it's problematic as it gets. Is she she's a spinster at a library? <laughs> I would like to point out, Tom, this is the same point you raised on Dodsworth. Anytime we do a movie from the 40s, you're just like, I'm just glad there was no violence. That's the I mean, it's gotta be take away from it. But yes, it is, you know, I mean, there's violence on a child in this one, of course, because again, the old pharmacist just box his ears. Have you forgotten the most the most uh violent war the world has ever seen, which is in this film, to be clear. Um I do like I do kind of, def- I do kind of defend the closing of the library moment. Not in the sense of like I think it's sterling cinema. It is certainly like presented as, oh my god, she's single, and like that's you know not great. But I do think there is something to the idea that it is like, oh, she was only ever gonna be with George. Yeah. You know, it doesn't it doesn't portray her as like she married um <clears throat> she married Sam, and you know had had a bunch of kids who go hee-haw which oh my god how terrible um like but uh yeah it is presented as like this kind of the 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 alternate universe stuff in this movie presents this idea that like george bailey is a fixed point in time and in the universe who improves everybody's life and her life is not demonstrably worse she just like is single and has a job which in the 40s is coded as bad but it's not like she's dead or you know a drunk or whatever yeah it's presented it's presented as like this north star isn't around anymore and so she's this twin star that just doesn't have anything to orbit and like i i always kind of like that and I do think it, it it does like pair with the way he sees everyone's lives in this alternate universe is that they're all alone. Like we even find out that the fucking taxi driver's wife left and took the kids. Like yeah. the mom is living alone. She's doesn't she doesn't even have the housekeeper. She's just living alone, miserable. Uh you know, I mean, we see everybody is just mis even um the I forget her name, but the one that's kinda like the hot chick around town. Oh, Violet. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah Violet yeah. is basically just miserable and alone and even more desperate for any sort of affection or love or whatever. And she's being dragged out of a bar. Just that everyone's just alone and miserable because this one good man doesn't exist to show them all you can be good that there is good in this world if you know potter isn't turning everything into a slum village i'm always fascinated by capra's politics because he was a republican and granted the the um the party 
polities of American politics were have been very different throughout yeah. history. And like Capra is pretty clearly a uh, Republican who, you know, believed in like government staying out of business, but also like we should not, you know, be total assholes all the time. I feel like that's a that's a that's a political position you can ascribe to Frank Capra. Um, well, that's yeah. Well, that's so many of those guys who came over from Europe around that time, too. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. you know, so many of those guys who came from you know who who came over and were believed in decency but also went i've also seen you know we believe one too many guys we 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 put them in office and uh suddenly they go real fast from everybody's pal to full fascist so you know yeah like yeah. that type of and, that type of guy and it is like um you know it's consistent it is it is a consistent worldview but it's also like this movie feels pretty pro government intervention in like um, you know, uh, this few movie feels pretty pro something like government intervention. Cause if you think about it, the Bailey building and loan is actually a private enterprise, but there is a very, there's a bunch of very socialist ideals that underpin how that business works, despite the fact that it's not run by the government. And I guess what Capra is saying, I guess Capra's view of the world is that we should all just sort of be socialists voluntarily, and then the government should just let us do that. And if there's a guy who's an avaricious capitalist, he will be punished by karma, which is, you know, it'd be nice if that were true. I mean, but there's also, I mean, one of my notes specifically when they're doing the whole scene with the run on the bank and the run on the building of loans is I wrote, oh, thank Christ for the FDIC, because that's, you know, obviously you deal with all those bank runs around that same time. I also think, though, the interesting thing about Capra and his worldview is that, you know, I, I think, you know, you mentioned like that, that, that social view, but there's also an element of a full acknowledgement of ah, people are kind of just selfish animals. Like that, that incredible moment, the guy you really hate in the movie, the guy who comes in and just is like, I want all my money. And George is going, well, please, come on, help us out. No, give me all my money now. And. I mean, that really kind of breaks your heart because George, they're saying, well, that wasn't the original agreement and their view in that moment. And maybe the kind of people who are, uh, you know, I think part of what makes that moment hit me so hard is that there are so many people now who take the stance of like, oh, listen, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I just, you know, it's the system, man. It's the system. But then the people that they actually view as part of the system sometimes are their friends and neighbors, you know, that, that, that in that moment, in that moment of panic, that, that George Bailey stopped being a part of the community or a friend of theirs or someone they knew and just became like, well, no, 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 he's part of this. I got, I got to get my money. I got to get mine. I got to get out of here. I think that's so heartbreaking in that moment, you know? No, I mean, I, I think that's hundred percent correct. And I think that uh, is an extension of this being, uh, you know, definitely a post-war movie. I mean, this guy, you know, Frank Capra went to the war and he, saw the worst of humanity and it wasn't a case of like an abstract oh the government of germany or the government of japan did this thing he's like no he saw like the people he saw that individual people can be animals and monsters too and i'm sure he saw it on the american side too i'm sure he saw the soldiers do some horrible shit and i think that extends to i think that basically underpins basically the entire point of the movie which is that yeah life kind of sucks the world's gonna kick you people are gonna look out for their own but as long as you like you try to do the right thing and you have your own like people that care about you and you care about 
then life is kind of worth living. Otherwise, you're you're just gonna all end up being vicious animals living in Pottersville. Basically, I, you know, I don't. It it just has that. It, it it's almost nihilistic in the way of just you can't trust the world at large. You have to just make your own circle and try to make things good for the people around you because the the rest of the world is not going to care. Mister Potter is going to keep trying to bring down your business. Yeah, there's a very like. For a movie made by a lifelong Republican, there's a very mutual aid network quality to this film. It's very much about like, well, I got my DSA pals and we're going to like set up a building and loan. And I've been thinking about this a lot as the political situation in the United States has gotten, let's say, interesting. It's been it's been a fun time to live here, especially as a <laughs> queer person. And, you know, I'm thinking about, OK. The message of a lot of these movies is you can only count on the people you around you and you need to like be there for them in the way they are there for you. And Capra's like Capra's vision of diversity now seems extremely white to us. But at the time, you know, he had Italian folks in there. He had like all sorts of um, different ethnic groups that now we read as white. And at the time were read as like very, uh, uh, different and there were a lot of prejudices against them and he's presenting them i want to be clear the italian people in this movie are they're like mario but like you know like <laughs> like the they, he is still like essentially saying these are good people and like we need to look out for each other because if we don't those fuckers down at the bank are gonna stomp on our necks and like his argument is essentially that you can only do this in small private groups of whatever and like um a, a more forthright socialist or even communist would say you know the government needs to organize this but like there is something very very weirdly like modern leftist about the vision of this movie um right down to the fact that like italian stereotyping hey we all love that i mean listen both our last names end in a vowel we're all on board for those kind of stereotypes listen, my, listen, my favorite my favorite part of the movie is when they're moving Martini's family out of the slums into Bailey Bailey's new housing development, and it's just like twenty Italians just flooding out of the house, and also a goat. <laughs> they they put the goat in the back of the car with the, with some of the kids, and they just ride off, and it's just like, you know, you want to say it's stereotyping, but also Capra came from the old country. This is yeah. probably something he's he's probably oh, dealt oh, with. Oh, personally. absolutely, absolutely. Um, Which just, just, just fantastic. Also, Martini, what a guy! He really he's great. He, he really good. stands up for George when that guy beats him up at the bar. Yeah, you get out of and, here! I don't care about your money. You hit my friend. Yeah, and stand I up love, for George. I love Nick. The, you know, just like who, oh, yeah. who's just like, hey, I'm giving out wings. Like it's so he's so like, yeah. There's just some, there's something about this movie's. I never thought I'd go on a tangent about this movie's portrayal of Italian Americans, but like there's something really heartfelt and warm about it that I find, I find touching. I, I tend to connect the directors that, you know, that did five came back where it's like, I feel it's funny that like Capra and Ford and Houston, you watch all their movies and there's like a rowdiness to it. And I just love that it's a different kind of rowdiness. You know, like in this one, it's got that Italian like, oh, we're all friends and family. Oh, we drink. Oh, we got the goat. The, eh. And like in Fords, it's the Irish rowdiness where they're all just getting drunk and fighting. But then they're all hugging at the end or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, that was a fun fight. And Houston's is just doing crazy things. And we're just, I don't know. Hopefully we don't die by the end of this. But hey, isn't this funny? Ha ha ha. 
and I don't know. It just feels it. It's just I. I don't know. It's just I like the rowdy, the rowdy old filmmakers. There's also an element, you know, we're talking about not just the, you know, the Italian uh, characters that show up in this film, but that one of the things that's great about the characters in the film, the, the supporting cast, is that it is just like a town full of characters, right? Yeah. We, we talked about the hee-haw, hee-haw. We talked about um, uh, the, uh, now I'm forgetting the actress's name, uh, who, uh, Gloria Graham who in this film plays a girl who just can't say no, and then later in Oklahoma sings, I'm just a girl who can't say no. You got to appreciate that kind of narrative through line in a career. But it is like every supporting player in this film is a character. Bert and Ernie, you love Bert and Ernie. You're rooting for everybody in this. And there is just something about the way that Capra, you know, when you look at like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is a great film, but that's got maybe three characters who really have personalities, and then there's just a bunch of street urchins. Um, that's really it for that film. This, he really does just build this whole community. Um, and I think that having those supporting players means so much, because if anybody wants an example of what... To, if you want to see what Miss, uh, It's a Wonderful Life gets so right, uh, it's kind of like I've I've argued to Tom that I did not actually love the musical Into the Woods until I saw the movie. The movie, which I don't love, helped me see what the musical did so well. And in the same way, uh, Emily, are you familiar with the movie Clarence? I have heard of it. I've never seen it. I thought you were going to say Family Man starring Nicolas Cage, directed by <laughs> Brett Ratner. I was going to avoid that filmography entirely. Uh, impressively, not in the registry. Uh, yeah, no. Crime. Money Talks is not in the registry. We're going to get that taken care of very soon. Clarence is a 1990 sequel to It's a Wonderful Life, starring Robert Carradine as Clarence. They explain this away that apparently angels age backwards if they do a good job. And Clarence has to go down and help a woman not commit suicide because the video game company that her husband owned might go bankrupt. And it's watching it. It's trying to do It's a Wonderful Life again. But it, the characters, the supporting characters are barely there. They're just cliches. By the time the mom's like, I'm going to jump off a bridge, you're like, are you? It seems like you just had a rough day. Uh, and you realize and you come to appreciate how much, how carefully plotted this film is in terms of how everything just sort of builds up to not just George being at the bridge, but when they reveal to you where every character wound up if George wasn't there, you really feel it. You feel for each one of them, even though some of them have only been on screen for maybe 10 minutes total. I just think yeah. that's so impressive. Yeah. There's like uh, every time I watch this movie, I've tweeted this a few times. Uh, the scene at George and Mary's wedding and then the scene at the end. There's so many actors in those shots. You know, all of the characters names. You know, their relationships, not only to George and Mary, but often to everyone else in the frame. Capra has blocked them in such a way that you can see everybody's faces. It's it's one of just in terms of like as someone who I, I used to direct stage plays as someone who every time she would get to an enormous group number in a musical would just be like, I don't know, you all just kind of flail around a little bit. 
I'm agog at how well blocked this movie is. It's just everything. Every actor is in the right place. You can see their face. You could see their performance. And, you know, a lot of that's down to the actor, of course, but, but Capra's ability to pull people into focus and make them feel like people is so uh, impressive. And I think this movie is like the height of his ability to do that. And I mean, it's all to a point, you know, because that ending doesn't work if we don't know all of these people. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple to say like, obviously like, duh, but like we spend an hour and a half before the angel stuff. So like, we need, like, you need to know all of these people. Otherwise everyone coming and giving him money and and the fact that we know that they're not, you know, well off and they're still coming on Christmas to help out the guy who helped them out so often. I mean, the movie doesn't work. I'm sure in Clarence, they don't spend that much time giving all of these people agency and character and a full, well-rounded life. So the point where I don't know what the ending is, but an ending where they, you know, reaffirm her existence doesn't have the same weight. Um, also, well, they learn how to do have... voice-controlled video games. That's the ending. Okay, they so it's better. Hey, you Pikachu. Yeah, that's okay, pretty so much better. the plot of the film. Um, but it's also again, it it also has to be. It's also important because you need that moment where George's faith completely snaps. That we know Uncle Billy so well at this point, and we've spent so much time with George, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, giving them a helping hand, doing everything. Oh, they're good people. Blah 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 pay it forward, and then Uncle Billy just fucks him so completely hard on accident and all of the good things he's done is about to go completely under because he still kept letting this drunk doofus have an important part in this business that is barely hanging on as it is. And if we don't know Uncle Billy completely in, what, like five, ten minutes, you know, the scene where he's like, Oh, I'm gonna go spit in Potter's eye. Point me in the right direction. Where's my hat? Which 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 one's my hat? The one in the middle. You know everything you know about Uncle Billy, so you know exactly. Oh fuck. Oh no, Billy's got the money. Oh no, he lost the money. Oh fuck. It's 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 this insane. Like you don't even think of it as like a like a puzzle box or whatever. But it's all these little things that if you don't have these characters, George's misery doesn't really ring true. Yeah. Because yeah. He, he, it has to be well earned. You have to, it has to be well earned why he's putting these faith in these people and why they come to him, why they reaffirm it in the end. So, yeah, I mean, Capra's work with the extras, I mean, because Jimmy Stewart's going to just give it great performance. That's like really just, that's not even a surprise at this point. Maybe a little surprising how frantic and manic he gets at points, but. The work he does with the supporting cast is really, yeah, like Emily says, it's 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 out of control how good this fucking supporting stuff is. I um I want to return to a couple threads that we let drop. One of which is the depiction of Italian Americans, and the other of which is uh, World War Two, because of course yeah. one of the countries that um, America uh, fought against in World War Two was Italy. And, you know, um, I am of German descent. I am of people who came here around the time of the war and like were very much aware of, you know, we have German accents and people are suspicious of us and blah, blah, blah. And like, I think having characters with like, like thick, stagey Hollywood Italian accents, nevertheless, is like 
part of Capra's vision of like, no, we need to like fucking figure this out. We need to be able to build a better world because, and I think this is the thing that, that a lot of people miss about this movie because it's a thing that America like missed about World War II. World War II was a destructive, terrible thing that ruined a lot of families' lives and ruined a lot of the men who came back. Their brains were shattered by it. They had uncontrollable PTSD that they were not really allowed to talk about because society was like, no, you can't, you can't be weak if you're a guy. And like it, they, one of the, one of my favorite periods of American art is basically 1945 to 1955, which is all these stories that are like, yes, we stopped fascism. We needed to stop fascism. That is a good thing we did. Also, we're in so much pain. Was it worth it? And then gradually, because World War II is like the closest thing you can find in global narrative to like a good war and i'm using that very loosely because like the bad guys lost and the good guys won and you can simplify it that way we all that nuance gets lost but you look at these movies and these novels and so on and so forth and they're all just about we really got fucked up there and we don't know what to do with it and then the culture at large was like well don't do anything about it let's just not think about it ever again and I think, you know, it's it's great for that. I was going to say, one of the things that makes this film so fascinating, uh, when you look at, you know, this year in cinema and the years around it, right? I mean, there are plenty of movies that you can talk about as war movies, like a Best Years of Our Lives or anything like that. And what I think is so interesting is that this movie makes a main character out of the guy who would be a minor player in most of these war era movies. You know, the brother is the war hero. The brother is the one coming home in, in most of these other films, you know, I mean, even in best years of our lives, which we covered last season and is a movie I love, but it's really about three dudes coming home from war and their family members are just kind of there off to the side. It is interesting that the, you know, the brother has, the brother gets to have the main character life. You know, George gets him sent off to school and, and, and the brother's off in the world. Like, the brother gets to have the life of what would normally be the main character and George is just the, you know, the sad guy that gets left behind. And I do think it's interesting that we kind of get to see that from his point of view. I mean, you could also argue that this film is a, you know, a microcosm of the war because you are dealing with a despot in Mr. Potter, you know, and, and you could, you could stretch that as far as you want to stretch that. But even if you don't, like there is just this element of at home during wartime and the struggles that came with that, that I think is such an interesting kind of peripheral aspect of this film. Two of, two of my favorite movies, American movies of all time came out in 1946. And the other is um, the best years of our lives, which is a phenomenal movie about guys coming home from world war two and the way their town reopens to readmit them and yet like the ways they can't leave it behind i i that movie's like almost 3 hours long and i can just mm-hmm. watch it like like i'm eating candy it's so yeah perceptive and insightful and beautiful and i feel like if today you tried to make a movie about world war 2 veterans coming home and struggling with ptsd and all of that i think people would kind of subconsciously reject it even if they were like this is good 
because we've sort of decided that World War II doesn't have that narrative around it. But of course it does. It's war. War always creates broken people. And like, uh, I feel like because we understand the uh, the stakes of if the Nazis had not been defeated, we don't want to think about all of the ways that the people who defeated the Nazis were like broken in that effort. And yet we have this Christmas movie a lot of people watch every year that is explicitly about that and like the ways that even people on the home front were horribly scarred by it and horribly marked by it and if you were alive in 1946 and you had just been through a great depression and a war you were like you had shell shock regardless of who you were regardless of where you stood in the social order like george bailey's never going to be the same because of those two enormous things and like it's good for him to remember that people have his back and it's important for them to have each other's back. But also those two things are always going to loom very large. And it's so, I, I think, you know, I mean, first off, let's, you know, you're absolutely right. But also uh, I think if, if one more movie is, uh, I'm going to avoid saying this this way, because if one more movie uh, or TV show in our modern landscape is described as quote, it's about trauma. I think, you know, half of film Twitter is going to, throw rocks and and uh, cans but there is something with this movie about the the thing that makes george bailey snap in the end is not a single thing yes you know uh uncle billy loses the money but you appreciate how much of this is just this guy has just had to bear more and more weight as it goes on there's just one hit after another and there's never really the relief of it, and the only time he gets close to relief is that moment where Mr. Potter first offers him the job. Mm-hmm. You see that for the first time, the weight is off his shoulders, and there's this feeling, you know, in that moment of like, oh, it's all going to pay off now. Like, I went through all that, but now it leads up to this. And then, of course, he shakes his hand and, and then looks at his hand and recognizes, like, I can't do this. I know that this would destroy so many people and this would, you know, I I just, but I do just think about that. There are so many little moments in this film with George Bailey and what he does or doesn't do. There's the, I mean, when he's having his breakdown and he's going up the stairs, there's a moment where he grabs like the ball on the top of the stair or at the bottom of the stairs on the railing and it comes off the little wooden ball and he stares at it for a second. And it looks like he's going to throw it, and then he just chooses not to, and he puts it back. And I love something like that, because you just see, you just, it, it, there's, you don't know what he's going to do, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And I guess, so when he finally winds up on that bridge, you absolutely buy it, which I think is so incredible. I think that one aspect of this movie that gets overlooked a little bit sometimes is Donna Reed as Mary, mm-hmm. um, who is like, basically there to be the good woman and like that's that's such a that's such a tricky character to play much less portray but i think i think what makes this movie good is that she's not good she's decent she's like she has some similar you know the fact that she goes after george in like in a movie that is centered on on sam or is centered on mary like that's a really big conflict that she goes after this guy but this movie's centered on george so we see it that way and like i like that she is someone who knows what she wants and goes after it and i think that this movie 
I'm never going to sit here and tell you this movie is a feminist masterpiece because it's not. But I think there is this element of like, there's this element of like boldness to the portrayal of that character. I think it's lost a little bit because our idea of what women can do on screen has changed so much from 1946. But like, I don't want to lose that like Donna Reed is, is magnetic in this movie and like kind of someone I think everyone would want to be married to. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think um, when, uh, when George, when George's mom is like, Mary's the kind of girl who will help you find the answers. Like that's what I think everybody wants in a partner. And I think that this movie captures that really well. So like, I think it is really tempting to, when talking about this movie to, to kind of elide Mary because she's the one aspect that feels a little anti-modern, but I think that she's fantastic. And, and, and even if the anti-modernness of her is increasingly a thing that people see when they watch this movie, like Donna Reed's so good that you're kind of like, yeah, but it's fine. And I think that it's also, you know, you can, there's a lot more to it than if you take necessarily a literal reading. Uh, one of my favorite scenes uh, that I think somebody watching it for the first time, when I watched it with my, uh, my partner uh, and she had never seen it before and she's, you know, she's a, a doesn't watch a lot of older films and, and maybe kind of jumps to those, uh, you know, some of those conclusions that, that you can draw. There's the moment where uh, her robe comes, where you know, Mary's robe comes off and she's hiding in the bush, right? And there's that great little bit of, of George just being, you know, that, that playful little, well, a fella doesn't get himself in a situation like this and this and that. And her immediate thing to jump to, which I understand, especially if you're watching it for the first time, is, well, this is wildly inappropriate. Like, this is, this is you know, he's, he should give her her robe back. This is all about... And I, I kind of pointed out, like, especially I think the more times you watch it, you kind of pick up on, no, there being, there's a playfulness to this. There's a, there's a flirtation to this so that when George gets taken away and she pops her head up out of the bush, you see on her face that shift where she's like, oh, this just got serious. And I think that she does a lot of, you know, Donna Reed does a lot of work, as you're pointing out, Emily, of kind of doing a lot without having a ton of lines or any way to really express that interiority. You know, it would be easy to play that scene as just like, Oh, this scamp, he got her robe off, but it's not, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot more of letting their relationship play out as much in the sort of silences and the implications as it is in the dialogue. Yeah. I do like one. I would want to return to a point you made about how every movie is about trauma now. Um, and like, I am someone who is, um, I'm, I'm in like really intense trauma therapy and I'm someone who, when I hear something is about trauma, I'm like, sure, whatever, whatever, Kevin Feige. Um, but I have tried to like sort of moderate that because I think Americans as a people, but really like sort of basically what we would have formerly called Christendom. I'm using like a, like a really outdated term, but you know, Western Europe and, and so on and so forth is really bad often at actually talking about trauma and about terrible uh, things that happen and the ways in which we break each other. And because if you start to think about how many people are victims of terrible things? How many people have terrible things happen to them? How many people are scarred by a thing you casually do one day and don't realize you did? You know, like like all of the ways that we can hurt each other, the second you start to think about that, it just becomes numbing. You, you're turned off to it. And so I think 
that movies in particular are a way that we are able to think about that in ways that feel safe and approachable. And It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies about trauma for that reason. I put heavy air quotes around it because it never says it is. Now, when you when we're in this era where like it's become a marketing buzzword, that's trickier. But I do feel like as someone who has experienced trauma and has PTSD, um, like CPTSD, like I think there is I think there is some value to the fact that we are talking about it a little bit more openly, even if we're like, well, you know, Thor's got trauma. Uh, to be clear, when I made that comment about, you know, modern day. Oh, no, no. I was. Yeah. No, no, but I was saying that more in the sense that at this point, as you pointed out, when it becomes mm-hmm. the marketing tech, that there is that there is this sense, especially amongst, you know, some folks in the film Twitter world who are kind of like, well, you can't just say that you have to do more than yeah. just say that. And that's yeah, what I mean. myself. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's I'm like, I'm yeah. not. Yeah, I'm not coming down on you. I'm not coming down on myself. I think that is a natural knee jerk response to what has become a marketing tactic. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad that marketing tactic exists. I would rather have that than be like, well, you can never talk about bad things ever, you know? Um, Oh, goodness. Uh, Did anybody else have anything specifically about uh, the film they wanted to add before we... uh, What is... Oh, let me ask. What what is the line where the waterworks start for you? Where's... What's your individual, like, okay, it started, uh, cry line? Ugh. I don't even know if it's a particular line, man. <laughs> I think it's just the second he's he's on the bridge and he realizes he's back to the reality and he starts freaking out and he's like, Merry Christmas to everybody, blah, blah, blah. And then he gets to the house. I mean, honestly, the waterworks is when everybody starts coming in and giving him money and saying like, thank you, George, for everything you've done. It's That's when I lose it. I'm like, fuck, fuck you, Capra. I always lose that. Uh, remember, uh, it, it literally is remember George No Man is a failure who has friends. Like, I'm always like holding it off and I'm like, is this the time I don't cry? And then it's always there. It's always like, oh, yeah. right. I don't know. Like, I, I uh, talking about how this movie was my favorite of all time has sort of made me think about like why, why I kind of displaced it. And like, I think it is so to me tied to a particular, I think Capra's a lot like Norman Rockwell. In that he's capturing a kind of America that never really existed, but in a way that allows for the complexity of America while still presenting the overriding like p- optimism about it. And like my love of this movie is so tied up in my fundamental belief of certain things about my childhood growing up in a small town like this, that like the movie has been a little marked by the fact that that wasn't true. But it's a wonderful life was never true, you know? Bedford Falls doesn't exist. And like that's why I cry. You know, I want to believe the message of this movie, um, even if I don't know that it's true. I mean, there is, however, a Bedford Falls Museum uh, up in Seneca Falls, Ooh. New York. Yes. And I hate to disappoint our listeners. Yes, I did drive all the way to Hyde Park uh, when we were doing our Pari Lorenz episode. I did not have the ability to drive six hours to Seneca Falls to go to the It's a Wonderful Life Museum. But folks you better believe i'm planning a trip um so as we as we wind down uh tom how do you yes. think it's a wonderful life did at the academy awards uh i mean probably got a few nominations i'll probably say like three or four probably a director uh picture actor 
maybe screenplay. Uh, I don't think it won anything. Uh, you are correct. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Picture alongside Henry V, The Razor's Edge, The Yearling, and The Winner, another film we just talked about, The Best Years of Our Lives. I almost said Best Picture winner, and then I was like, I'm remembering we're playing a game, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, I, I go on a rant about this one all the time. I'll get into it in a second. Let me just say, it was, no, it was nominated for Best Director, lost to Best Years of Our Lives. Best Actor for James Stewart, lost to Frederick March for Best Years of Our Lives. It was nominated for Best Sound Recording, but lost to The Jolson Story, which is a very weird movie that I'm certain... No one's ever going to watch, but it's a biopic of Al Jolson where Al Jolson insisted that he himself sing the songs that the actor would on screen be singing. But it's old Al Jolson. It's really That's weird. Hot. That it's, sounds like a, sounds like a fucking hot movie. There's, I, I, this young, <laughs> there's this young kid <laughs> playing Al Jolson, and then he's going, to, oh, wait, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. And then you hear... When the red, red robin comes bop, bop, bopping alone. And it's like, it's so jarring. It's a good thing I didn't see that movie at the age of 11 or my sexuality would be really fucked up right now. Um, I actually want want to find a cute twinkish boy, but also sounds like he smoked 80 cigarettes a day for 60 years. He's got to have the looks of Jeff Buckley and the voice of Tom Waits. That's the guy. <laughs> I'm going to look for this movie now. Um, one <laughs> thing I one thing I like forgot to bring up is I saw this movie at TCM Fest a few years ago, and the person who introduced it talked about how it is actually a landmark movie in the history of visual effects. A lot of the stuff that was pioneered in this movie uh, was used throughout much of classic Hollywood, including the recipe for fake snow they use yes, in this movie. Cornflakes. Continues to be like the fake snow that they use for years and years and years and years and years. Um, and uh, the the thing with the stars blinking at the start was also like incredibly like technically advanced yeah. for the time. And now you look at it and you're like, I could do that in my Adobe After Effects, but like, no, you couldn't. Uh, you I couldn't. should. I should also note it was nominated one more time. It was nominated for Best Film Editing, but lost to Best Years of Our Lives. So that was how it did. Now, I bring up the Oscars a lot because I do want to touch on this last thing. Tom and I were talking about this before we started. There is a bit of a when the legend becomes fact, print the legend thing about this movie now, which is when you watch documentaries or like, you know, behind the scenes things that talk about it. They do tend to the it has escalated to the point where now the narrative around this film seems to be when it came out, the public rejected it and tarred and feathered it and everyone hated it and they burned all the masters. Yeah, it's like it's very. It was not as well received as Capra's other films, but I do like to point out it was indeed nominated for Best Picture. It was a it wasn't a complete, you know. Like people tend to go with the story now that oh it flopped so bad it went into the public domain and that's why it was on TV. That's not exactly how it worked out for folks, you know. In in reality, they still held the copyright on the original story and so much of it because it was a derivative work. The TV station still had to pay royalties on this stuff. The actual story of how It's a Wonderful Life became a holiday classic. I think people like to go with that story of like well it was played on tv all the time and that's why and i think that when we go with that narrative it sort of diminishes the fact that a large part of the reason this became a holiday classic is just because it's a 
great movie that reached a lot of people and touched a lot of people, you know? Yeah. And like people forget that in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like all these local stations were just picking up movies they could play cheaply. And like those were usually movies that were in these old studio packages. So like, yeah, you know, but this has somehow become, well, that was the movie you could show for free. And like, not really, but also like there's so many movies that became staples because they were shown constantly on TV in the 60s and 70s and like good for them like a lot of um a lot of Howard Hawks is as well known as it is because of television broadcasts so um yeah i don't know i i think i like the legend but also also if you're like well it's more complicated than that and i'm going to talk to you about how syndication contracts work people have already left so um what is true is that it's a wonderful life was not seen by anyone until <laughs> 1975 um well i mean if that's not the note to to wrap up on with that absolutely true fact emily thank you so much for joining us i'm so very glad we can yeah this, this was great thank you you're welcome i'm i i truly apologize if i just was too uh, all over the place. And I want to apologize to residents of the Northern Hemisphere, which include myself. You're fine. You're fine. You're doing it. You're just getting through every day. You're just getting through your life. And to residents of the Southern Hemisphere, thank you. We love you. Emily, do you have anything you want to plug on the way out besides various hemispheres? Um, <laughs> let me just tell you a little bit about the Western Hemisphere. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, uh, my, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Emily VDW. I talk about all my nonsense there. My writing appears at vox.com. Um, you can find my newsletter, uh, at letterdrop.com slash Emily VDW and, uh, the podcast Arden is available all over the internet. There's two seasons out and we are in the process. A lot of other people I'm not as involved anymore, but, uh, are making season three and it will be out, uh, hopefully next year. So that's, uh, you can find that at ardenpodcast.com. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. I had a couple of ways that I could go with this. Uh, obviously, the, the clear connection is, is a Christmas film, a holiday film, and especially a holiday tradition. It's a Wonderful Life may not have been a uh, holiday tradition for me, per se, but there is a particular type of film, a particular genre of film that is just those traditional uh, holiday season viewings. So I was trying to think of what other films, holiday films, are so significant, so often parodied, so much in the fabric of the American pop culture vernacular that they need to be preserved. Uh, in the same way that It's a Wonderful Life is partly preserved because of how much it's just kind of a key to unlocking our culture and what we spoof. The film I was thinking of 
uh, and this is not the first time I've done this this season, but the film I was thinking of aired on television first. So I was wondering, you know, am I getting too dicey with that? I actually went to the National Film Registry's website, and under their FAQ, they say, and I quote, Registry criteria does not specifically prohibit television programs, commercials, music videos. Ergo, my pick for the registry. A holiday film that is as memorable and infinitely quotable as It's a Wonderful Life. If you want to make somebody feel Christmas at the movies, you can say Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls, or you can have somebody go... You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. 1966, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You've got Boris Karloff, Thurl Ravenscroft. Uh, it, you know, that song is iconic. That animation is iconic. The way the Grinch's little, you know, hairs curl on his head and he makes those faces and the heart growing three sizes. It is the best translation of a Dr. Seuss book to screen in any way, shape, or form. And I think that the message of that story and that film really speak to me and my own feelings around that holiday and, and what it just kind of morphed into uh, much more than uh, the Ron Howard adaptation later did. I think that How the Grinch Stole Christmas is, aside from just being a Christmas movie or anything like that, is just one of those films that is so often parodied and is so much a part of the American pop culture fabric that it needs to be preserved. So my pick is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, 1966. All right. Well, that just made my job a little easier because I had two choices. And with Mike going with a Christmas pick, I'm going to go with one of my typical demented finding a weird way into this thing where you go, how the hell does his mind even work? So my mind with this one went to an angel comes in and changes things. And uh, there's a supernatural bent. Things are kind of explained. Not really explained. Who cares? The rules don't matter. All that matters is the point of the thing. And so uh, there's, a, there's a movie I love from a director star that I love that is very much about a specter-like character wandering into town and uh, enacting some changes. It is not as lighthearted as It's a Wonderful Life. This feels more like a, a Christmas Carol, which It's a Wonderful Life is much definitely a flip side to, uh, where this specter shows everybody what uh, what what they've done wrong and all the prices they're now going to pay uh, if they make it out alive. My pick is High Plains Drifter by Clint Eastwood, one of his best movies, one of his darkest movies. And yet there is a weird spirituality thing of Clint's character may or may not be a ghost or an angel, avenging angel, some sort of spectral being coming into this town that did wrong and making them have to learn the lessons of all the mistakes they made. Crazy fucking movie. Love this movie. I'm going to keep putting Clint movies up. I don't give a shit, but this is legit one of his best. We're not discussing a uh, a Gran Torino here or a Changeling. This is a legitimately great movie. No no mistakes found. So Gran Torino, no, no, no. We're talking about High Plains Drifter, baby. I'm putting up High Plains Drifter. If you guys haven't seen it, watch it. It is insane. <laughs> Thank you again to Emily St. James for joining us. Next week, 
I'll be moving into the guest chair to cover our final film of the season, 1948's Red River. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.